welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I'm your host, Shona Home. Well, my dear listeners, you are in for a treat today. Rak Razam is a mythic storyteller, screenwriter, author, journalist, filmmaker, and public speaker. He has been exploring psychedelics and spirituality for the past 15 years, producing the critically acclaimed adaptation of his book, Aya Awakenings, and now producing his current documentary series, Shamans of the Global Village, which offers an intimate look at the resurgence of medicine people around the world, working with psychoactive tools for community healing and enlightenment. Rack has taken groups to Peru for a number of years to experience ayahuasca, and he facilitates and works with the medicine of 5-MeO-DMT in countries where it's legal. His website is rackrazam.com, which is loaded with highly relevant writing and videos, and you can type in Rack Razam on YouTube and subscribe to his YouTube channel. I met Rack 10 years ago when he interviewed me, and I had the pleasure of meeting him in person probably four or five years ago. With all his gifts and talents and experience, Rack is one of the most genuine, affable people you can meet. And I am so thrilled to have him share his experience and wisdom with you today. So welcome, Rack. Why, thank you, Shona. I am uh, very happy to be here and really happy to see you continuing to flourish in your role within the community. We're all here to give back and to do something, you know, that we're, we have within us to do. So I'm enjoying these connections that we share. So thank you for having me on your show. You're so welcome. You have led a fascinating life. And so I would just first like to hear, how did you find your way to the medicine path in the first place? Well, this is a, it's a very good question to open with. Thank you. And I'll, I'll just back up a bit there by saying um, probably hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people are experiencing their own version of this at the moment. So as we know, in the last you know few years, what's been called the psychedelic renaissance has coalesced and there's a lot more positive uh, press and sort of momentum behind this movement to reintroduce psychedelics and the healing potentials of them to the medical establishment. But also there's um, a movement around the world, what I call the global shamanic resurgence, which doesn't need you to go into the, the medical establishment, but um, to have your own ceremony or your, your own um, connection with the divine within, mediated through um, uh, plant and earth medicines. So all of us have a beginning. All of us have an origin point. And, you know, you were saying earlier, you know, many of us say, well, I'm not the type of person who would do drugs. How did you end up in this path? Well, it's very important, you know, because what is the difference between a drug and a medicine? It's intention, because everything is a chemical. Right. And the ubiquity and the ease of use and the, the medical sort of establishment and its terminology and sort of placing of these ideas of drugs or something we take. This isn't the medicine world. This isn't just things we take. These are relationships that we form within ourselves, with our subconscious, with sorting out our issues and also with connecting then to the larger ecology of the energetics of the planet which that information and that feeling of connection is available to us as human beings. It's really only been, let's say, the last 500 years or so as what Terence McKenna called dominated culture, this sort of um, overarching thrust of Western culture, which has subjugated the plants and the plant people um, and exterminated those archetypes in the West. So I came onto my path. Well, let's say it's always been an alternative path and into these type of ideas. And I never knew it was abnormal. Um, well, I guess I've always been the black sheep. But um, I guess I trace uh, some of the uh, 
inflection points or the turning points um, in, well, 15 years, 20 years ago now almost, um, I was a freelance journalist and I was working on a lot of countercultural spiritual um, issues. And so my real turning point is I went down to Peru in 2006 to work on an article about ayahuasca. And not just ayahuasca as the medicine, but also what the, the mythic role of the shaman was, that archetype in uh, indigenous cultures in Peru and coming back into the West and what it meant for the West to be re-engaging with this vegetal sacrament of ayahuasca and with the legacy and lineage of the teachings that it was providing. So that was really my big initiation into the plant medicine world. I did come from sort of um, the outdoor music festival doof scene with psychedelics beforehand. And there's always been an element of intentionality in terms of altered states of being with me, of exploring and making sense of it. You know, these things aren't just recreational. There are capacities that can reveal so much information within us. So um, in 2006, I went down to Peru and I did that article, which turned into a book, which became um, Eye Awakenings. And then that book then turned into a documentary adaptation. We had a lot of video footage that we um, had taken during that, that first uh, trip. And uh, we really tried to recreate the interior landscapes and take people on a journey through the film, uh, just as we did with the book. So those, um, those media artifacts sort of set me on the path of being a person who knows, I guess you could say. You know, that's the Latin for the word initiate, one who knows. But you have to have initiation to know. So in Joseph Campbell's, uh, you know, um, uh, classic uh, archetypal book, um, the, the Hero with a Thousand Faces, he maps out this idea of the hero's journey. And there's different variations on it. But individually and collectively, I believe we're on this hero's journey. And the hero really means someone who is self-aware, someone who is sovereign, someone who has responsibility to respond to their actions and their life and to seize the reins of their life. You're the hero of your life. You choose, right? You're not a passive victim. You're in control of your life and you can choose. And these medicines can reveal uh, a connection to a deeper level of reality and understanding. And this isn't, you know, hippie, dippy, airy, fairy stuff. This is um, it, you could call it mystical, you could call it spiritual, but these are, are plateaus of uh, being and experiencing which have their own rhythms and their own rules, if you will. But it's, there's a mastery which can happen of your um, learning, just as if you might do like learn yoga or something. There's techniques and there's capacities and you learn more about yourself. So the plants and earth medicines are also teaching us. They are the teachers. Often, you know, in Peru, in the indigenous um, language, they'll call the, the, the plants or the spirits in the plants the teachers. And so we are engaging with a relationship with nature through the plants, which in Western culture, we have atrophied and we have lost that connection. And we've been imprisoned up here in the mind and going to nine to five and living in a box. And... Um, there's more to life. So I had my big initiation, which meant leaving behind the known world, having that initiation, and then coming back to the tribe in the heroic return with my knowledge and trying to put it out there in ways which might be comprehensible and help people who are also on the path of discovery. Okay. Yeah. And then you continue to initiate yourself. I mean, it's a, it's a, quite a process. 
Okay, the real secret is I don't think the initiation ever ends in the sense that there's an infinite expanse of reality, just as if you might, you know, I know you do, you do a, a white belt and a yellow belt and a blue belt or a black belt. There's levels of gradations of learning, even just within one sort of system. But then what you quickly discover when working with psychedelics is it's infinite. And so there's people come to this work with the medicines maybe for their own personal healing, maybe they have a specific issue they're working on, which, you know, psychedelics in general, through all that medical um, reappropriation of these substances has proven the efficacy for different issues. Uh, but, you know, um, these substances can heal specific issues or even in a bigger sense, you don't have to have a physical sickness. When I first went down to Peru, all that time ago, one of the main things that the curanderos or the shamans of the Amazon told me is that people coming from the West have a sickness. We all have it, but we might not notice it. It's a disconnection. It's a feeling of either aloneness or lostness or not knowing our place in the universe, not knowing why we're here, right? Like this feeling of what's it all about. And, and so this not knowing is the first step you have to realize what you don't know to realize that there's more out there and it's waiting for you. And there are many, many modalities. Obviously, life is an infinite. Choose your own adventure. You know, and so plant medicines and earth medicines are just one facet of that. There's many ways to access your own divine knowledge. Um, and what we're saying is that these substances are valid. They have a power. They have a potential. Um, and they have a relationship with humans that goes back for hundreds of thousands of years. It's really only been in the last few decades through the political machinations of the war on drugs and the Richard Nixon administration and all those politics, you know, of the empire of the mind, which is orchestrating civilization to its own little agendas of, you know, what it wants us to be and do. Um, but life is bigger than that. And your life is important. It's like seize the reins. These substances may assist in revealing that there's more, but we're not saying you have to take them. They're not for everyone. There can be contraindications. There can be reasons why they're not a good fit for people. But um, in the, the palette of tools that are available for us to truly know ourselves, the plant and earth medicines are very powerful and uh, very time-honored allies on this path. So you've been around for how many years, Rack, in this kind of, I don't know if you call it the psychedelic world, but but how many years would you say it's been? Um, well, how to, how to draw that line. I, I would say I came back to Australia after living overseas in 95, no, 97, and um, started to get into the electronic music scene and the, the outdoor festivals. Um, and that was when I first really felt that sense of community, that there was a subculture who had its own dress codes and language and understandings. Um, but, you know, I, I would say probably 97, so a good 26 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, my goodness, have you seen changes in that mm. world? It's become quite commercialized. We are all about that spiritual side mm. of psychedelics and and where they can take you to touch deep into your soul and your connection to the greater world and we were talking about just how with all this commercialization now it's just it's very different and it's become very 
it's getting regimented. I, I've studied natural law for a number of years, thanks to the mushroom. And there's a maxim of law that says, uh, first of all, favors from government often carry with them enhanced measures of regulation. And you can see, you know, I saw that happen with cannabis and we're seeing that start to happen as mushrooms get legalized in different states here. And it's just, it's just becoming very, just regimented, almost a little superficial. Like there, it, it's more about getting that person kind of back to work, back to productivity and less about opening to the numinous, to that, that deep mystery within that each and every one of us carries that is possible as you mentioned to access not guaranteed but certainly possible with these medicines so I'll, I'll i'll leave you to it so yeah to to talk about where we are today in late 2023 in terms of psychedelic culture we sort of need to step back and understand where we've been you know to to compare it so um you know for the last 35 plus years, there's an organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which was essentially pretty much the only or one of the only um, NGOs that were uh, championing psychedelics and their, their potentials. And, you know, from the, from the mid 80s onwards, during the Nancy Reagan era of just say no and war on drugs, and everything is culturally constructed, you know, every culture gets the medicines it needs, just like it gets the drugs it needs and the politicians it deserves. You know, it's like, it's all part and parcel of where we are at culturally. And there's always agendas. There's always control mechanisms going on. So, you know, since the 60s, the control mechanisms were to demonize psychedelics. Uh, before psychedelics were um, uh, criminalized in 1966, uh, from about 1943 when LSD was uh, invented by Albert Hoffman of the Sandoz Laboratories, um, there was you know, an effort around the world to look at these substances and their potentials. There was over 4,000 studies done with LSD in terms of its healing capacity. Um, there was, it, it was, you know, very well studied and they, they knew that it's potentials for creativity expansion, for connection, for healing, all of these things. But it was outlawed because um, the, the cat got out of the, the bag and basically it was, it was too much too soon and it was transforming the social landscape of America, if not the world. Um, but, you know, again, even with that, there was um, very proven, verifiable, documented links of the CIA and other organizations, but mainly the CIA promulgating acid and pushing it out there and doing a grand social experiment to basically sort of mm, tease the consciousness and see what would happen. We don't really know why, but it is very well documented. The MK Ultra and all the CIA tests basically created the scenario, which then um, made the LSD revolution so powerful in terms of so many people all experiencing it at once. And what these substances do is they're social deconditioners. So they can be ego amplifiers, they can be deconditioners, they sort of reset the system and you can have an expanded awareness experience, um, but you've got to be very careful of the context because there can be conditioning and there can be lots of stuff going on. Anyway, so in the, the wake of their, um, their banning, uh, there was a generation or two where these substances went underground. And in that time, the 
the flame was kept alive by the trippers, essentially, by the ones who realize, okay, these substances are powerful, they're, they're fun, they're engaging, there's a place for them in the human sort of, um, you know, repertoire and, and utilizing them, but they weren't in the establishment anymore. They were a threat to the establishment. But again, that threat was orchestrated right from the start, right? And so um, they were kept at bay. And so in the last few decades, as all the um, pressures of the world have increased, basically what we're seeing of the control mechanisms of global culture is a um, not just a commodification and the buy-in, the, the social uh, transformations and potentials that the 60s unleashed were revolutionary, right? I mean, reality was up for grabs and it was a direct threat to the establishment paradigm. And so that potential is still there but we don't see it with psychedelics anymore per se so what's happened is you know with the pressures of the world um antidepressants came in in the in the late 80s prozac was one of the first ones basically they've created what algis huxley called a soma you know uh, a something which sedates people keeps them in their nine to fives keeps them going on the rat race and the treadmill of life which is frankly unsustainable and killing us and it's you know the way we've orchestrated culture is not healthy it's not good for all of us and we can see in the world that there's a civilizational breakdown happening in front of our eyes now but essentially you know for a few generations now um a lot of people in the world have been medicated to keep them um, as you say, at, at the wheel of the rat race and to keep them in the game, you know, without rocking the boat. Um, those substances are not proving, you know, in the long run to be eff efficacious for people. They're not working. And it feels to me that the powers that be want an alternative to keep everything the same. They're looking for another, no, it's not a placebo, they're looking for, a, you know, something which is going to fit the, um, the requirements there. So psychedelics have been proven in some recent studies to be as um, as powerful as antidepressants or more efficacious than antidepressants, which only have a very short-term sort of effect. Uh, and they can assist people in transiting. And basically, you know, many indigenous cultures don't have the problems of Western cultures because they live in more sustainable, earth-grounded um, ways of engaging with with the earth and each other but in our culture in this rat race we build up the anxieties the stresses the fears the traumas and we're not really taught how to process it so these substances which have been shown to um, change the chemistry or the, the the formatting of the brain what the modern neuroscience has shown is that psychedelics in general uh, lower what they call the default mode network a regional cluster at the back of the brain, which sort of makes up this channel of reality from incoming sensory data. And it allows that rigidity where we build up all this stuff and it never stops. It enables consciousness to flow and to go into different arenas and different capacities. And in doing so, it can release the stresses and tensions and anxieties that build up and glitch in the system. So these substances can, um, they can do that. They can maintain our uh, mental health but that's not in, in microcosm, like microdosing or in small doses, that's just band-aiding the same issue. So in the 60s, these substances led people to new trains of thought and to new horizons of realizing that we can live in a different way. We can live in a way which is equitable and sustainable and joyful. And yet 
all of those ways of living require a sacrifice. They require a, a way for us to live that is not the way we're living now, which benefits the few, not the many, in terms of the hierarchy of civilization and where the money really goes and who's in control of the whole show. So psychedelics, um, they open you up and they make things very visible and understandable of what reality really is. And they're powerful tools for that. And so the powers that be don't really want them in the hands of the masses because it's going to lead to a consciousness revolution, which could lead to a physical revolution. And so the micromanagers of culture, which have exacerbated and really ramped up in the last decade or two, there are so many global agendas at play at the moment that we almost can't trust anything because, um, you know, for instance, the um, American government has a program called Full Spectrum Dominance. You can look this up. Every 10 years, they update their, uh, their plan and their goal to remain in control of the world, basically. Um, and they say, and this is all documented, they say that, you know, if a medium exists, whether that's land or sea or space, or um, cyberspace or information space. And there's a big difference between cyberspace and information space. So we know and we hear of threats, you know, it's like terrorist, 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 but people, you know, that are out there doing scams on the internet and cyber attacks and all of that is, you know, possible and, and, and not a good thing. But what they've also said is that there's information space. And what they mean by that is culture. They mean these conversations we're having now. They mean the media. They mean what we're taking in, what we're seeing on television and movies and magazines. If you control the narrative, you control the culture. And so they said a few years ago that basically they are moving into information warfare with the citizens of the world. And they're not hiding this. They're not denying this. They've said this very clearly. They just don't mention it much. Once they've said it, it's, it's going to happen. So we are in a state of perma-war. And we're also in a state of perma-crisis at the moment because of the choices we've made or that the dominated culture who controls the, the, the sandbox here has made to keep itself in control. And these substances of the psychedelics are the antidote. They're the antidote to his story or history because they help to dissolve the mind and the ego, which has created the problem. So, you know, we can look at life as something to be scared of or something to celebrate. Is it a miracle or is it a slog? Is it something to, you know, get through? It can be all of the above. But the thing is, it's, it's something that is here for us to experience in its fullness and to contribute and to give back. And we're being blinkered and we're being sidelined and we're being manipulated on a cultural global level constantly i mean all of civilization on one level or another has done this and there's levels of engagement like it would be very hard to try to control and run a planetary civilization if we had one um but you know this is the problem the mind and the ego which thinks it has to control is at the root of the problem of civilization which is only 10,800 years old, it's probably longer, but um, what they say, what they will acknowledge and what they, they will let us know. But what I'm getting at is there's something at the root of civilization, which is about control. And it comes back to the ego. And these substances 
loosen the ego. They loosen the rigidity of our, not just our way of thinking, but how we see the world. And in that way, they've been a threat to the establishment. So why are they coming back now? Because they couldn't ignore them any longer. And they saw a strategic detournment, a way that they could take these substances and defang them and take out the revolutionary potential and create, as Aldous Huxley said, a soma for the masses. So there's two sort of theories on how if someone wanted to control a planetary civilization, you could go about it. There's the um, the uh, the Orwell approach, the George Orwell 1984 approach of total censorship, total surveillance, total control. It's pretty heavy because it takes a lot of energy to continue to maintain that. The other option is the Aldous Huxley approach from Brave New World, which means that you give them the soma, you give them everything, and they're so sedated, they're so complacent that they never challenge anything. And so we seem to have a mix of the two at the moment in the early 21st century. Um, but the point is psychedelics are, as tools, they can be used to control just as they can be used to liberate. It's all in the intention and the way we're using them. And so what we now have since in 2006, we're talking about, you know, in my early years, I went um, as my first assignment, I went uh, to uh, Basel, Switzerland to cover the 100th birthday party anniversary symposium of Alger, uh, Albert Hoffman, the chemist we mentioned earlier, who in, discovered LSD. Um, and basically that was the, the turning point where the term, the psychedelic renaissance was coined. And all the world's media was there in Basel, Switzerland, honoring this hundred year old man who had discovered um, LSD, his problem child. And it was sort of the start of the turn of the media, um, really looking at these substances and how they could be used. And of course, you know, um, there's so much in this modern psychedelic renaissance, as they call it now, but it's driven essentially by money. And it's driven by people who are making it their business to make money. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what we're entering into is an unprecedented age where the revolutionary potentials of psychedelics as spiritual tools to transform the culture of capitalism itself, which was once a direct threat to, are now being commodified and absorbed by the capitalist system to be used in microdosing niche ways or to be used in the medical establishment in a therapeutic set and setting if you can afford $9,000 for um, three MDMA sessions with your therapist. So um, it's and only in that set and setting, and then they'll still be illegal elsewhere. So they sort of found a way to bring these revolutionary substances back into the mainstream conversation to get everyone excited about them. Michael Pollan, the famous author, New York Times sort of uh, food critic, wrote the book How to Change Your Mind in 2018, and it has been the Bible for mums and pops across middle America to get into the idea of psychedelics and want to try them. Of course, what that has created is a supply and demand issue, a bottleneck around tens of millions of um, people wanting to try these substances. And yet the medical establishment still hasn't got them legalized and ready. And even then it'll be within the therapeutic set and setting for those that have the insurance and the overheads and the resources to do it. Um, so we, we just have this really, unprecedented era that we've entered into where psychedelics are back they're becoming uh legal in certain parameters within the medical establishment and yet um no one's trying to levitate the pentagon or overthrow the war machine 
or envisage uh, just an equitable world where everyone is fed, healthy, and connected to the divine within anymore. Hardly anyone is doing that because there's now this drive to this relentless sort of um, capitalist ethic that everyone has now jumped on board this bandwagon to be a psychedelic life coach. It's interesting times. It is interesting times. You know, I have a friend in Oregon where it's now legalized and she's been an underground psychedelic person for quite some time. And she told me that she had a therapist come and this woman has worked with ketamine, but she came for a single session of psilocybin with my friend. And then within days, she is now teaching how to facilitate psilocybin sessions. And, mm -hmm. and what she and I were discussing about that was, A, first of all, one session, and now she's an expert, but B, this idea of there's no relationship with this spirit, the teachers, as the word you used, of the mushrooms themselves. Like, there's no relationship. I'd love to hear you talk about that as well. How does this thing scale? So psychedelics and these medicines are coming back into Western culture. There's 8 billion people on the planet. There's this supply-demand issue that there's not enough medicines for 8 billion people, and even if everyone wanted to do them, and we're not saying everyone should do them. I mean, it's, it's very tricky because these top-end discussions aren't being had. They're not being had. I mean, I would know because I'm pretty plugged into the culture and and some of the, the leadership of the culture, you know, in this. But there's this drive now for sort of the life coaches, for the facilitators or the providers, uh, for the retreats, for the lodge sort of system and for the medical establishment. And there's an industry. It's an industry. You know, it's it's the it's the. Um, well, it's the sort of sort of psychedelic industrial complex, more or less, isn't it? And so it, psychedelics is in, in the mainstream now. It's in the capitalist mainstream now. And so everyone wants to do it. And so what I'm trying to say, though, the scaling is like, okay, say, say 100 million people are coming into psychedelics this year that have never done it before, that want to do it. Well, if you have um, 10, if there's a 1 to 10 ratio, then, you know, you're going to need thousands of facilitators and so it's funny because what we're sort of seeing is that response is it a response from the collective how to, how in in the indigenous let, let's give it a contrast and a counterpoint in the indigenous um communities when they work with medicines they live on the land they're from the land they're in a tribal structure and it's a different culture than we have ours is a lot more disconnected and superficial so they have deep entrenched relationships with the earth already because they grow the food they live on the, the land they understand the seasons you know the west has this romanticized archetype of the noble savage of this indigenous person and you know it's very rare that we'll have an untarnished indigenous person that isn't sort of um clad in nikes or hand-me-downs you know when i went to peru and you go all the way up the amazon three days up the amazon in these boats and and, and all the indigenous communities you meet have like all the hand-me-down thrift shop clothes and all the all the western brands and everyone's everyone's connected if not colored by by capitalism and by the globalization of the world but in these indigenous cultures they still have medicine people so originally and this is what i was researching originally when i went, when I went down to peru in 2006 what is the role 
of a medicine person. So the word shaman is really bandied about. But get this, for 500 years, Western culture killed its shamans. We killed our medicine people, our herbalists, our witch women, mm -hmm. our people that had a connection to plants and medicines. And um, somewhere along the church really got turned into this sort of like, you know, extermination machine of, of exterminating the connections, not just with the individuals they might have killed, but the the body of knowledge that was held in those people and their relationships with the plants and the medicines. So in an indigenous uh, paradigm, everything is alive. Everything has a spirit in it. It's an animist type of understanding. The plants have spirits in them. The, the rocks have spirits. The rain has a spirit. There's chi or energy or prana or whatever you want to call all these indigenous cultures and Eastern cultures. They understand spirituality as a system of living in the world and understanding the world and the energetic reciprocation and maintenance, you know, within that everything feeds and is fed in the web of life. They understand their place. Now, as part of that, there is an energetic ecology. It's not just a physical reality. That tree has a soul or it has an energetic sort of, you know, aura or, 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 or presence and all of these things are connected and all of them are interpenetrating and feeding one or the other and they're all in relationship with one another. And so when you're on these substances, what they really do is they quieten the ego mind. And as the, the ego mind quietens, the rest of your faculties and capability can connect and hear and feel nature in a visceral way. We can reconnect back to the mother. It's all about the relationship. So in their indigenous cultures, they have medicine people all across the world. The word shaman comes originally from Siberia. It's a... a, a it's been appropriated by um, anthropologist Mercy Aliad, who wrote the book Shamanism in the early 50s and really popularized this archetype of the shaman or the medicine person. It was popular in the West because we lacked it. We, we killed off or we had an absence of this archetype. And again, looking at the vectors of history and of civilization and of control mechanisms and of empires and subjugation of the land, you know, it's a story. It's all a story, but you can see these strands and these commonalities and you can see where what shaped the story. And so essentially what it is, I believe this story is a love story. And it's a story of our separation from the mother and from our relationship of love. When you're in love with someone, you don't, maybe you do hurt them, but you feel this connection, right? And you exchange energy. The planet birthed us. We come from this planet. She exchanged energy with us and we're giving back. Like every breath we take is sacred. We wouldn't be here unless this miracle of, of nature was sustaining us and birthing us every second. And what are we doing? We've fallen out of relationship with nature, right? Of the relationship. We no longer feel it. We might think it. We might see it on our screens. We see it in a feed. We see how bad it's all going out there and all the stuff nature's going through. But we're not feeling it. We're disconnected. Because, because it's what... Yeah, well, what, what the medicine people in their cultures were, under Merce Eliad's definition of the shaman, were technicians of the sacred. They mediated the energy in their tribe, in their culture and communities. They helped sort things out, you know, keep people good and sort out their issues. But number one, they looked after their health and well-being with plants, with trance, with dance, with awareness of energy and awareness of relationship. When those 
um, lodestones are taken out of communities, it gets chaotic. And over time, that chaos builds to a dis dissonance, which is in disarray and a relationship that goes bad. I mean, you know, we could use analogies like cancer cells in the body. Originally, they're functioning cells, but something goes off. And if it's not mediated and repaired, it spreads through the entire whole, the whole system. And so over the last 500 years, our Western disconnect, because the indigenous culture still stayed in connection, has thrown the world out of kilter. And we have dominated the land and the animals and the people, and we have take, take, taken, and we are a species, a rogue species out of control, like a plague of locusts devouring everything in our path. And we don't see it in the day-to-day -day because we're living in it. But over the course of decades and centuries, you can see what we've done. But we're still not feeling what we've done because we're disconnected. So these medicine people originally trained like for instance in the ayahuasca tradition they train from an early age my maestro percy garcia lozano in peru who runs um the das das ayahuasca center he trained from 10 years old and they go through a period of um sacrifice and initiation they're on a dieta where they give up um you know red meat um sugars um all of these things which cloud the body and they purify so their energetic systems are sensitive enough to hear the spirits in the plants, which are always talking, but we don't hear it because we're too busy chopping down the trees and building chairs. It's crazy. It's literally crazy. Modern man is insane. And we look at all these things which bring us back into insanity. We call them insane. That's how insane we are. So these traditions and these roles and these archetypes of the healers they're walkers between the worlds they're teachers um but they work on behalf of their communities to mediate and to to the energetic exchange and so over time without these archetypes in western culture the sickness has spread and it spread back to the first world and it started to cut down the jungles and everything it's been doing. But at the same time, they have a legend in Peru of the eagle and the condor. And they say that after 500 years, and this is was, the legends over 500 years old, um, it would say that there would come a time of rebalancing, a time where the eagle and the condor, which represents North America and South America, the two totems of those areas, would come back into unity. And the, the, the eagle and the condor also represent the mind and the heart. So Western culture has been in the ego and the mind, and it's run rampant over the world. It's invented some amazing things, right? But it's not been developing its heart connection. And without knowing why you're here, it's no use knowing how you're going to do your Twitter feed or where you're going to go. With I mean, these are all just things without knowing in your heart who and what you are, why you're here and what we're meant to be doing, then it's out of control and it's going to run amok. So the shamans or the medicine people are the ones who help remember. Everyone has this capability within them, but we get busy with life. So this was a dedicated role that had a lineage. You were either um, part of a genetic sort of lineage where this was passed down. You had the, the potentials to do this work which is traditionally hard work on the outskirts of the village, one foot in the world, one foot not, because if you get embroiled in all the 
drama and the gossip and all the day-to-day, you forget your spiritual connection. Someone has to hold it together when everyone else forgets. That way you can remind people what it's all about. And so we have forgotten in the West. And in the last generation or two or three, um, the West has gone back to the the old world. It's gone back to the jungles and to, to nature. It's gone back to the indigenous peoples. And it's remembered that it's forgotten something. And these um, substances have the potential to teach us. The spirits in the plant can directly teach us. They can connect us. They can show us, you know, that the there's an entire bigger world out there than just the physical reality. It's like an iceberg with nine tenths under the surface. And there's a bigger world in there as well as out there. But we need to remember. So in the last generation, there has been um, a weaving or an outpouring of people going back to the old world to remember. And there's been, as I call the global shamanic resurgence, a transmission from one culture and one generation to the next and a rekindling in our generation of this archetype of the medicine person. We still have a lot of dogma around the term shaman, but you know what the worst thing is? We can't even relish or um, celebrate the fact that we're remembering that we are holy and we are part of this miracle of life and that we are stepping into these roles of medicine people on behalf of our communities. So what's happening to come full circle to your question, they're almost like Instagram shamans. They're people with very little training, they have their experience. But remember, if 100 million people come online this month, well, what are they going to do? They're going to have their experiences. Hopefully, they're going to be held in a, a safe, sacred and sound ceremony setting to have their healing and their connection and their initiation. But there's this, um, there's this understandable glamour and excitement and giddiness when you have your first experiences. Oh, my God. And then you want to share it. But then to step into the role of serving the medicines, it's a whole nother kettle of fish because there's deep responsibilities that goes beyond the experience you had in your ceremony. And there's deep issues and deep traumas and deep um, patience needed to hold space for others. And so I do commend the enthusiasm of people coming online and into this medicine world. And in some senses, it's not their fault. But what I would caution them to do is to take stock and have a reflection from maybe some more experienced people that have been around for a while on what to do and where to approach. So if you go online, there's going to be a hundred, here's your one week shaman course or your three day or your weekend course, or here's your toad medicine course, or your psilocybin course. And, and it's like, it's not enough. It's not enough. And it's, it's dangerous to think that you're trained to handle all the eventualities that you will need to know. But the the upshot I do feel and hear is, well, you've got to start somewhere. And so, you know, on that ratio of 100 million people come come online and want to do these medicines, and it's like if there's one to 100 ratio of a medicine person in an original village, one to 100 ratio, then you need a million healers you need a million shamanauts or practitioners of of ecstasy here of of the divine arts and where are they and how do they all come online at once so we're going through a, a a a growth spurt and teething issues as a modern culture 
Um, and we have the psychedelic renaissance, which is embedding all of this with psychedelics within the medical establishment, with therapists who are trained to work with the medicines who hopefully will take them themselves and understand what's happening on the inside. That's a whole nother issue. Um, but we're also, that's just one sliver of it because there's this shamanic underground, which is booming with um, a, a wider variety of medicines available and experiences. Um, and yet it's unregulated. And the, the, the most important thing is that the community regulates itself that it grows at its rate that is safe and sustainable for it, knowing that there is a big um, bottleneck and more people wanting to come on board. But, you know, it's like everything gets destroyed when it gets overworked or overburdened or the system breaks. So there needs to be a titration of bringing people in slowly, almost like a buddy system. So if you have a friend that's interested in psychedelics, sure bring them along, invite them to your next ceremony, but you're responsible for that person, right? You're helping with their integration because the next person, then they'll invite someone, then they have to be responsible. What I'm seeing now is this transmission of responsibility, which needs to be formalized and understood, is that we can't hold back the scale of growth and of the interest of these substances, and it's happening unprecedentedly, even bigger than the 60s, right? The mm -hmm. 60s caused such um, waves in the mainstream because it was so um, alien for white picket fence, middle America of the 1950s type of variety, you know, crew cuts and and, and nuclear war and, and apple pie and all of that. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a shock, but what we need is a responsible growth of that because, um, it's, it's happening and I see this trickle down where then people are coming into the culture, but they only know this much. And you've got to start somewhere. I'm not saying that's not the right thing, but in that community, those new people should be held and there should be a, a period where they're learning before they anyone answers the call to serve because what you don't know is your shadow and that's going to really affect the ceremony and the safety of that ceremony for people that you may be in service to that you don't know how to help if mm -hmm. you haven't had experience yourself that's absolutely right what what would you say for people to look for if they're looking for a practitioner what would you tell them to look for there's a lot of good information out there so as you mentioned at the start you know 5-MeO has been my predominant medicine for the last seven-year cycle. There's an, uh, a website oops, There's a website called theconclave.info um, for 5-MeO practitioners and the general community. And there's a lot of good information about there on, on that site looking at what to look for for a practitioner. So you can ask how long they've been doing this work, who they've trained with, um, you know, what their expertise is or, you know, what it's it's really important i mean i think you know it's almost like if we go to a doctor we go to a normal gp we, we bring up online maybe it's a new you've just moved or you don't know what you need need a doctor we don't ask this of doctors either we don't go into the office and say oh how long have you been doing this work and what are you what are your trainings and do you believe in fluoride or you know we, we don't we don't get a fit if they're right for us we just give our power over to this authority figure and so in our culture what we're seeing now is like shop and go shamanism right it's like people have heard of like psilocybin and like oh what is psilocybin and someone says oh here's someone's number and then someone sends them information but they just trust and that's dangerous okay 
So I, I, I invite anyone who's interested in working with psychedelics or entheogens, the other term for earth-based medicines, to, um, to, you know, have a conversation with the person who you've been referred to and see not only what their heritage, their lineage, their training, their capacity to hold space for you, but also does it feel like a good fit? Like a woman might want to go with a woman facilitator or, you know, not be triggered by a guy or sometimes there's men's circles as well. Or sometimes the, the facilitator, there might be a perfectly good facilitator, but you just don't gel with them. And the thing is, internally, this is such a sacred experience, such a profound experience. And there's a lot of levels of sublimated ego resistance where you're having the experience, but you're holding on. And why are you holding on? because you don't feel safe and you don't feel safe because somewhere within you, you just don't know how to let go. And so the exterior ceremony container can be held and safe and sound and sacred, but the relationship you have with the facilitator is what is allowing you to feel safe or to recognize you're not feeling safe and to ask for help with that. Um, and so, you know, yeah, ask. Ask them and ask about your facilitator. And also don't chase these experiences. They're more and more common. More and more people are having access to medicines, not all of which should have access to medicines because of personal use, sure. But when they're out there promoting themselves, a lot of people have unprocessed shadow, which is what, you know, a psychological term for all your unprocessed stuff, all your trauma, all your ego stuff, all your desires. Um, the facilitator's energy is going to color every aspect of ceremony, what they play with music and styles, the space they hold, the choice of the environment, their energy in ceremony, how you receive their energy, how they're projecting that energy, if they're aware of their energy in ceremony. Um, there are so many nuances. It's like, imagine you're giving birth and it's like, wouldn't you want to like check out your midwife or check out your birth? You want to put a bit of energy in to a special occasion, to this thing. The more care and the more forethought and the more you're aware of what you're getting into and making sure it's right for you at this moment, the better it will be. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's personal responsibility. It's on us to to do that. And and I really, my heart goes out to these people who I've noticed that too, so trusting. And there have been big problems with mm -hmm. certain practitioners, very unscrupulous and some downright dangerous. And well, as I said, the first time I went to Peru, the common refrain I heard from the shamans I was interviewing was they were saying, well, it's probably people who were talking about the shamans were saying, there's like three common issues all across the board, all in the world, all time, all, all, all areas that um, shamans or medicine people, and it's usually men, right? But no, it's, it's money, power, and, well, money and power. That's essentially it. It's that often there will be advances to women by male shamans in ceremony under the influence or yeah. subtle energetics around that or the money or power. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a role which has a lot of power embedded in it. And it shouldn't, in a sense, because really it's about empowering the person, you know, and it's about holding that space as that role and that archetype of the medicine person to provide a safe space for the person undergoing the journey and their healing journey. I, I like to say for me personally with 5-MEO, I feel like it's more like a midwife. It's not like a shaman or a therapist. There's elements of both. But it's this very vulnerable, intimate, sacred space where this person is rebirthing and having this experience 
which invariably people say is one of the one or two or three most important experiences of their life. And so you want, you know, to, to be empowered. You want to know the person you're working with, but most of all, you want to, um, you want to make sure this is the right step for you. You know, this is a very sacred work and it can very easily go dark if the right circumstances aren't there. You're going into your depths and often that is expressed. I mean, you're being witnessed by whoever it is you've chosen to kind of oversee. Mm. Your so I think it's very intimate and, and trust. You really want to be able to trust that person. Mm you know, to know that they will, they will take care of you no matter what. I, I love midwife because that is the term I use. Six, I think that is so astute. Mm. Beautiful. Well, again, it, you know, there's different gradations of, of engagement with medicine. Martin Ball, one, another commentator, his 5-MEO would delineate different archetypes within the work. He'd say there's providers of medicine, there's facilitators, and maybe there's shamans or shamanic, you know, practitioners who have more ability in ceremony to engage with the process and energetically assist. Um, and more and more, well, I think what we're seeing is the entry level people who are providers, they're providing a space, they're providing a medicine, but they might not have deeper training with that. Um, but it's got to start somewhere and just know what you're getting into. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I say we're good for the first hour. And so I'm going to invite listeners to come to themushroomsprentice.com and subscribe because you have a lot more to share. And I am very anxious to hear what you have to say. 